Case number 19-3746 and case number 19-3747, Union Pacific Railroad Company versus International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. Mr. Garland. Good morning and may it please the court. In the decision rendered against Union Pacific by the United States District Court for the District of Nebraska, the court in the conclusion portion of the memorandum wrote, although this court has ruled in favor of SMART as to the reinstatement of Mr. Lebsack, the court is troubled with this case. Upon careful review of the record, this court is puzzled how the arbitration board in this matter came to the conclusion that Mr. Lebsack's actions of purposefully defecating on the knuckle of his train and leaving his feces for others to clean up somehow did not constitute conduct worthy of upholding his termination. It is from this decision that Union Pacific seeks relief because like the court, the district court below, Union Pacific is both troubled and puzzled how the arbitration board came to the conclusion that Mr. Lebsack's odious and disgusting actions on November 20th, 2016, where he defecated on a piece of Union Pacific equipment. I get your facts and I looked at the pictures, but it says 18 years service with limited discipline and all the other mitigating factors, dismissal was excessive. I'm quoting from what they said. Yes, Your Honor. But prior to that sentence, or those sentences, the court, excuse me, the arbitrator noted that before any disciplinary action was contemplated, it would have been reasonable for the carrier to first have sent claimant for a comprehensive psych and medical evaluation to determine his fitness for duty and his credibility and the credibility of his explanations. And if found fit, then it would have been appropriate to handle the incident strictly as a disciplinary matter. But Your Honor, that was all that was before the arbitration board. It was a disciplinary matter. The arbitrator then, in his decision, is treating it clearly as something different or more than a disciplinary matter, which was outside the scope of his jurisdiction. And section 45, United States Code, section 153, clearly states that when an arbitrator exceeds the scope or exceeds the scope or jurisdiction of his authority, then he's acting outside the scope of his jurisdiction. Well, counsel addressed all the black letter law, my goodness, that were to give extremely high deference to this very board. And as you know, there are a lot of cases, by the way, a lot of union specific cases, I might add quickly. And so what do you do with all those? I won't start reading you the words, but extremely high deference is not an incorrect assessment of the law. While there is extremely high deference, the reviewing court, the appellate court, reviews the findings of law, the conclusions or the findings of law, conclusions of law, de novo. And in this case, Your Honor, the court should take a fresh look at what the agreements to form the arbitration board provided in terms of jurisdiction. Section 5B of the party's agreement establishing PLB 7861 reads, the board shall not have authority to change existing agreements or make new rules governing rules and or working conditions. Counsel, 
Counsel, that's 5B, but isn't this controlled by 5A because we're dealing with a grievance or a dispute? But if you read 5A, 5B, and the agreement, the agreement says that you are only permitted to address the matters brought before the arbitration board. And the matter brought before the arbitration board was strictly a disciplinary matter with respect to Mr. Lebsack. That's all it was. It wasn't a fitness for duty determination or a complaint against a fitness for duty determination that Union Pacific made. It was strictly a disciplinary matter. The arbitrator expands what's before him, essentially, when he says, prior to treating this as a disciplinary matter, you first have to, Union Pacific, it would have been reasonable for Union Pacific to require a comprehensive psychological and medical evaluation. Your Honor, and then, if found fit, the fitness for duty determination is not even a part of the case. The fitness for duty determination, any fitness for duty determination at a railroad carrier is separate and apart from a discipline determination. The fitness for duty statutes and regulations enforced by the Federal Railroad Administration are not part of the collective bargaining agreement and not subject to it. And yet, this arbitrator, Arbitrator Morgan, felt that he had the authority in crafting a remedy to change what was before him from strictly a disciplinary matter. He advises that it would have been reasonable to have it be, or it was necessary, in fact, to have it be, first, a fitness for duty determination, and then, if found fit, if found fit, it could proceed as a disciplinary matter. But, Your Honor, you went back of what I quoted to you. I'll go back of what you quoted there. It says, in light of their knowledge of this specific employee and his psychological problems and everything that was in his fitness file, so they act like they're talking just about this case. I know you want the horrible situation, but how do you respond to their talking about this case? The fitness for duty file, I guess his medical, I'm sorry, Your Honor, the employee's medical file was not an issue in here. Let me interrupt you quickly. They say UP knew of his history of psychological issues. That's the suppressed premise of that. Now, you're saying that's not true? Union Pacific's medical department would know and have knowledge of that, but its frontline supervisors who were in charge of discipline would have no knowledge of that. And because this case was not a fitness for duty determination, his medical file, the employee's medical file, would not have been made part of the carrier or Union Pacific's record at the hearing, and it wouldn't have been a consideration of the superintendent. Moreover, that premise that the organization, Smart Union, said that, well, Union Pacific had knowledge of this, his long psychological issues and his physical issues, it presupposes evidence that's nowhere in the record. And moreover, the ADA makes it clear that that kind of medical information is to be segregated and excluded separate and apart from an employee's personnel file. So, again, 
the supervisors, the superintendent, the charging manager would have had no knowledge of Mr. Um, Lepsack's physical and mental condition. Moreover, the fitness for duty, to, and we're getting outside of the record, but the fitness for duty regulations and statutes are not part of the collective bargaining agreement. Those are detailed and set forth by the Federal Railroad Administration, administration statutorily and in regulations. Under the fitness for duty um, determination, Union Pacific does have access to plaintiff's medical file, right? And if the railroad determines that the uh, employee is fit for duty, then he works. Clearly, Mr. Lebsack, with all his history of medical and psychological evaluations, or excuse me, problems, was working on November 20th, 2016. So you can extrapolate that clearly he was fit for duty. But plaintiffs now want to argue that fitness for duty wasn't, should be an issue here. And it is specifically, it was not in front of the arbitrator. Moreover, Rule 82, the disciplinary rule that, that we um, cited in our brief, can be found at um, the addendum at page 13. Provision 2, the general statement says locomotives engineers will not be disciplined without first being given a fair and impartial investigation, except as provided below. Now, there's more there, but it does not say, it does not say anywhere in Rule 82 that engineers will not be disciplined without first being given comprehensive medical and psychological evaluations. Can that be and part that, of the investigation, counsel? Can that be part of the investigation? No, Your Honor, because specifically, um, Rule 82 doesn't call for that. Moreover... Doesn't it say investigation? Yeah. Didn't you, let me interrupt you. Did, and I know we got a little delay here, but, but it has the word investigation, right? And that's also right. in, the, in the decision. Can investigation include an investigation in the medical? No, Your Honor, because the medical, the, the medical, the fitness for duty determination is part of, is not a part of the disciplinary process. It's a separate, it is a separate function. There is nowhere in the collective bargaining agreement does it say that a medical determination must be made for um, a fitness for duty. If an employee has a problem with a fitness for duty determination, there is a provision, and again, I'm getting outside the record, this just happens and plaintiff's counsel will not dispute this, there is a provision that calls for a three-doctor panel to make a determination whether an individual is fit for duty. But again, that wasn't before the arbitrator. There was no issue with respect to fitness for duty. This was strictly a disciplinary matter. And it is your position that in this investigation for a disciplinary matter, there is no place for anyone to ever consider the mental or physical health uh, in that disciplinary process. Period. End of argument. Goodbye. See you later. Correct, Your Honor. You cannot. Clearly, when the agreement, when the agreement states between the parties that uh, the arbitrator cannot change rules or working conditions, then yeah. End of, end of story. You don't get to change the prereq. You don't get to, to retroactively add a prerequisite 
prior to imposing or proceeding in disciplinary in the disciplinary process when Union Pacific had no idea that it had an obligation to engage in such a comprehensive medical and psychological evaluation prior to proceeding in discipline. And, Your Honor, the arbitrator acknowledged that Union Pacific, that there was no factual dispute here, that Union Pacific had sufficient factual evidence that Mr. Lepsek did what he was accused of doing and would have been able to proceed in termination. It would have been able, it would have been reasonable if Union Pacific had would have first, right, conducted Counsel, a comprehensive. I, I held up my fingers, so now I'll oh, say I'm sorry, it. Your Honor. You're in your rebuttal, will, but uh, you're you're welcome to use it however you want to. You can use it now. Well, first, if if Union Pacific would have would have required a comprehensive physical and mental evaluation. Uh, Your Honor, I yield the balance of my time for rebuttal. Yeah, yeah, save the balance for rebuttal. And Mr. McKinley. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, may it please the court, my name is Sean McKinley. Uh, I'm Assistant General Counsel with uh, Smart Transportation Division. Um, and as uh, Judge Benton, as you said, that there's a, a whole host of black letter law uh, regarding the review of arbitration awards, specifically uh, under the Railway Labor Act. But I guess uh, it, so it is important to raise a few points for the purposes of this case. Uh, first, the, the standard of review of these awards is uh, known as among the narrowest known to law. Uh, that is what the Supreme Court has said. Uh, and this is by design because when Congress uh, enacted the Railway Labor Act, the desire was to provide parties with a dispute resolution process uh, that would provide consistency and finality uh, in order to prevent interruptions to interstate commerce. Uh, now, with that said, as uh, a counsel for appellant indicates, uh, uh, certainly a party can challenge an arbitrator's award uh, uh, on three grounds. Here, for our purposes, the challenge is made pursuant to the uh, uh, pr provision that uh, the arbitrator allegedly exceeded the scope of his jurisdiction. Um, now, while a challenge is permitted, uh, um, the question the court is not to replace its judgment for that of the arbitrator. Uh, the only question is whether the arbitrator did what he was asked to do. Um, and further, uh, when a, 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 an arbitrator's decision is challenged uh, for uh, exceeding the scope of jurisdiction, the court is to broadly construe the agreement and resolve all doubts in favor of the arbitrator's authority. Um, now, turning to the merits of this case, I think it's uh, apparent from Union Pacific's argument that uh, they certainly, uh, this is a case where the carrier, it's as old as the Railway Labor Act. This is a case where one party is upset at an arbitrator's decision. Um, and that happens all the time. Uh, but and, but the, 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 the issue here is that the underlying facts of the incident are not in dispute. Uh, they never were in dispute. Mr. Lebsack admitted to what he did. Uh, he expressed remorse and uh, there are a number of explanations for what was going on with him at the time. But the only question for the arbitrator was what discipline was appropriate. Um, and now here, as you noted, Judge Benton, the arbitrator found that it, Mr. Lebsack had a number of physical and mental health issues at the time, and he had an 18-year work history that was relatively clean uh, with Union Pacific. And then he found that dismissal was excessive under those circumstances. Um, I mean, getting specific, uh, and, and I bring this up because Union Pacific does not raise these mitigating factors in their filings, or nor does it raise it here. 
But the arbitrator found that Mr. Lebsack had physical and digestive problems, panic disorder, anxiety. Uh, he was suffering from fatigue on the day of the incident. And he also had personal issues where his wife had informed him two days before that she was leaving him uh, and wanted a divorce. Um, so <laughs> under those now, the investigation, the investigation that your uh, uh, adversary referred to, uh, did that investigation include finding these psychological facts, or is this after the fact that we find out about all these? Uh, this was all introduced at the investigation, Your Honor. Essentially, the investigation, it's, it's, it's in the record. I don't have the exact citation for you. But the investigation was, there was no question of the conduct. The question was what sort of discipline was appropriate. And the evidence introduced in the record involved his, all these various issues that he'd had uh, going on at the time as a way to and that was not... The, that was in the original investigation, correct? Yes, yes. Yes, Okay, proceed. Thank you. Uh, so, but uh, under these factors, the board found that dismissal was excessive, uh, and importantly, I think for purposes of this case, ordered Mr. Lebsack to be reinstated without back pay and subject to a last chance agreement. Uh, this is Counsel, well I'd like to just kind of hone in. The, the facts are disputed, and the general law is not disputed. We, we all know the, the very broad authority of the board in this situation to fashion a remedy, but there is one limit on their authority, and that is... Their decision has to be based on an interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement. And so I'd like you to tell me what precise provision of the collecting, collective bargaining agreement they based their uh, decision on, the, well, the, interpret, the interpretation of that uh, provision. Sure. Certainly, Judge. And thank you for the question. Uh, I, I, I would first argue that that uh, appellant puts too much stock into the statement about medical and health evaluations. A, a plain reading of the award is uh, makes it clear that the arbitrator was uh, looking at all these factors that were going on and just felt that dismissal was excessive under those circumstances. But as, uh, assuming uh, arguendo is that uh, Union Pacific argues here is that there was some sort of prerequisite uh, imposed upon Union Pacific for before they could uh, implement discipline against an employee. Uh, I would first say that, I, as as I believe Judge Benton mentioned, the, the 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 collective bargaining agreement requires a fair and impartial investigation. Now, that is a, a very open-ended term. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of specifics, uh, but certainly an arbitrator is within their discretion to interpret that provision. That is their that is their duty under the Railway Labor Act. Uh, and in this instance, if we are to accept the argument that a precondition was imposed upon Union Pacific uh, that would certainly be within the arbitrator's uh, discretion in doing so. So, so counsel, just so I'm clear, are you saying that the, the provision of the collective bargaining agreement that they are interpreting is the word investigation? Well, I believe the term fair and impartial investigation and all that encompasses. Um, that, that would it, seem to be all-inclusive. How do you mean by all-inclusive, Your Honor? Limitless. <laughs> Without limit. Well, I, 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 I agree with that, Your Honor, and I've argued many cases where I've where it involved kind of open-ended and vague uh, contract provisions, and certainly it can seem limitless, limitless I'm sorry, uh, the possible interpretations that arise out of that. Are you really arguing that it's potentially limitless, or are you saying that within a fair and impartial investigation that uh, the uh, uh, mental state underlying the act is a reasonable uh, area of inquiry 
uh, in a limited investigation? Because I think you're going to sit there and say there is no limit in investigation. Then we might as well just throw the CBA out and say start over again. You know, but if, if you're trying to tell me that sort of a mental uh, uh, state, uh, mens rea uh, kind of analysis underlying any act that is subject to discipline is is necessarily encompassed uh, in the in a fair and impartial investigation, I might buy that. But if it's like, well, we can just go into anything as long as it's fair and impartial, I don't see how how that how that helps you any. Well, I, 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 I appreciate the question, Your Honor. I think it's important to consider the, the context of the underlying incident, correct? I, this is a longtime employee who had a very limited discipline history who engaged in what, I, I mean, to at least be fair, is at least considered bizarre behavior uh, that raises questions as to their mental state at the time that this was happening. So I think the arbitrator would be certainly... Uh, it's not limitless, but in the context of this case, I think it's certainly the, the uh, Mr. Lebsack's uh, mental health at the time of the incident was certainly, I think, on the table, at least as far as the investigation goes. Counsel, my question is a little bit different. The board believes it's determining if the discipline was arbitrary, excessive, unreasonable, or abuse of carrier's discretion. What's that language from? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Could you repeat okay, that? the board says it's page two of the of the public lord uh, board decision. It's I think what it says is my, our job is to determine uh, if the discipline was arbitrary, excessive, unreasonable, or abuse of the carrier's discretion. What's that language from? Uh, is that from the public law board agreement, Your Honor, where that established? Well, I'm reading a quotation. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a quote, uh, reading a quotation word from from their amended final award, page two. Okay. Okay. And if you look down there at the end of the first full paragraph in that page, it says the board may modify the penalty if we determine the penalty was arbitrary, excessive, unreasonable, or abuse of carrier's discretion. Is that language in the CBA? Is it in uh, some of these rules we're talking about? Is it in previous board decisions? Where does that language come from? Well, uh, determinations like that, Your Honor, are essentially uh, typically arise from the uh, common law of arbitration decisions. Uh, it is a regular practice in the, in uh, especially in the rail industry, that uh, discipline imposed can be considered excessive, and uh, another discipline can be imposed in the alternative. Okay, uh, have, courts, have courts recognized that as being the standard the board can follow? Well, I, courts generally, when they speak of an arbitrator, uh, an arbitrator's discretion, they say that an arbitrator has broad discretion in fashioning remedies, uh, and that an arbitrator is supposed to be considered kind of an expert in the field of the, the industry in which they're 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 working, and they're supposed to bring that judgment to bear and form uh, a fair uh, 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 um, fair uh, determinations as to uh, the, to resolve the conflict here. Uh, and I, I, that's where I would, that's where I would think that language comes from, and what it's based on, Your Honor. Okay, thank Counsel, you. Go ahead. No, I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead, please. Okay. Counsel, I do have one other question. Uh, again, the, the the board has very broad authority, but uh, my question is whether they have authority to impose uh, employment conditions on employees, and specifically, I'm referring to the last chance agreement that they uh, seem to have imposed on the employee. Uh, I, yes, certainly, Your Honor. Uh, it is a common uh, uh, remedy in situations such as this that a last chance agreement uh, is imposed as a condition of uh, reinstatement. 
Uh, and I, as we're, as I said here before this court, I mean, the union has not challenged that finding of the arbitrator. Uh, we find that to be within the discretion of the arbitrator in fashioning remedies. In fact, you didn't appeal at all, right? Uh, uh, no, Your Honor, we did not appeal. Okay, thank you. You had filed no appeal. That's what I thought. <laughs> you know, talking about that unreasonable, arbitrary, and capricious, uh, I think that there's a couple of Tenth Circuit cases that that have, have recognized that or at least stated it. Diamond is one, and uh, I think Robinson's another. But I don't know that we've ever uh, indicated that in our cases. And and it does seem to be, if you look at uh, the uh, the board's decisions, it seems to be all over the place, all over the country that they keep saying that. But, but it doesn't seem to, and it actually seems like the Tenth Circuit lifted it from the board. So, I mean, it doesn't really look like there's any regulation rule or anything. And, and are you saying that as far as you know, that that's just the board's kind of, kind of shorthand and, and doesn't come from anywhere else? Well, uh, well, yes, Your Honor. I, I, that is my understanding. Uh, there is a 100-year a history of rail arbitration uh, awards. Uh, and I, I, I will admit, and I come across it in my employment, that sometimes different arbitrators will refer to maybe a different standard. But it is, generally speaking, that is the, the standard that they consider when they're looking at the type of discipline that's imposed. Uh, it's not part of the actual record of this case. Uh, I don't think counsel for appellant would disagree that the, an arbitrator has discretion to kind of look at the discipline that's imposed and maybe impose something in the alternative. That's certainly not an issue that they've appealed to this court uh, that was part of the district court case. Um, and with the limited time I have left, uh, there are a couple things. Uh, I, I think it's important to address the ADA arguments. Uh, Union Pacific has argued that to uh, require testing of this nature uh, would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, just briefly, I want to touch on that. First, that was not raised before the district court. Uh, when the And I note this in the brief in more detail, but the only mentions of the ADA or the FMLA in the filings before the district court were oblique references, were one oblique reference and one uh, hypothetical question that uh, appellant never followed up on in any sort of uh, meaningful way. Um, and accordingly, that argument should be waived. But uh, moving forward, uh, assuming that an argument is not waived, I think, again, we look at the circumstances of this case. You have an employee who has an 18-year work history who engages in this sort of conduct. I think while uh, Union Pacific has argued that they had no reason to believe that he had a disability or, you know, essentially anything was going on, I, I think that's, that's, that's belied by the facts of this case. Uh, I mean, certainly when an employee engages in this sort of conduct, it may raise a question as to their their, their mental health, and a, an, an inquiry can be made because it, it, this is a conduct that occurred on the job, and it can be considered uh, job you know consistent you know uh, job consistent with business necessity. Uh, so I think that that argument there is uh, is, is 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 lacking. Um, and the final point I want to make, just to touch on, uh, we argue for it in the brief as part of the enforcement action that. It is true the arbitrator did not award back pay in this case, but it has now been nearly two years since Union Pacific has... Counsel, you didn't file a cross-appeal, right? Well, no, Your Honor, but I... I, I, well, I don't you have to cross-appeal to raise an issue like that? Surely, that's what cross-appeals are about. Well, Your Honor, I would argue that the the issue of, of back pay would be part and parcel to the enforcement action itself. Um, 
And I, in this case, I think to give the full effect of the arbitrator's decision, that back pay, at least from the period that he was denied reinstatement up until he is reinstated, would be appropriate. Would you have uh, any authority of a court of appeals doing it where there's not even raised as a point on appeal? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't in this instance, Your Honor, and that's especially true because it's highly unusual to have disciplined cases appealed to a circuit court of appeals. Uh, there's very limited. Uh, and just as my last point, uh, they rely, uh, a union of central on mid-American. I distinguish that. Their circumstances are a bit different okay. from here. Thank you. Thank you for your argument. Mr. Garland, your rebuttal time. You're muted, I think. Mr. Garland, you're muted. Proceed again. Sorry, Your Honor. Uh, just to pick up on um, uh, a line that Judge Grass uh, raised in his questioning, um, the the language that the arbitrator used uh, to describe the basis of his decision is found nowhere in the collective bargaining agreement and nowhere in Rule 82 and nowhere in the agreement to form PLB 7861. He pulled it out of, out, out of whole cloth. And to the extent that um, Mr. M uh, that uh, Appellee's counsel or Appellee raises the argument that, well, it's just part of the um, uh, common law of um, labor arbitrations over the 100-year history of uh, the act, um, uh, plaintiff, uh, excuse me, appellate. Well, what, what about the words fair and impartial? What about the words fair and impartial ahead of investigation? That's in Rule 82. Um, and clearly when the, when the arbitrator says that there was substantial evidence, I, I didn't hear you, sorry, sorry Your Honor, you're, you're, you're breaking up. Okay. Uh, please, question, please repeat that. The question simply is that uh, doesn't fair and impartial mean something? Are those the right words? If they are, proceed with the argument. Where are your time short? Your Honor, again, when I did not hear your question. I'll be damned. I, I, Let I, me I see apologize. If, excuse me. Let me see if I can holler it louder. Sure. Uh, the question really is, uh, what about the words fair and impartial? Um, don't they have some meaning? Go ahead and respond. Is that right, Dwayne? Right. I did hear you, Judge Erickson. Um, fair and impartial clearly um, uh, have meaning, but do they, do, they, do they permit the arbitrator to change a rule and uh, requiring Union Pacific to engage in a fitness for duty determination or evaluation before discipline is a clear change of rule. It, I, I agree that that would, excuse me, I agree that would be, uh, I hate to interrupt you, uh, but uh, their argument essentially is, is that inherent in fair and impartial, there's at least, a, uh, given this bizarre conduct, a mental health uh, or, or like kind of a mens rea or mental, mental state uh, inquiry that is inherent in fair and impartial. Why are they wrong? Uh, because that's not contemplated under the agreement, and then you're you're bringing in mens rea. Um, well, then what's what? Who makes the determination whether um, the the mental state of the um, offending employee um, is uh, enough that he understands? I mean, what do we do? We now adopt a, a McNaughton test in an industrial hearing. Uh, it, it it just brings I'm in so sure many attenuated this. circumstances. I mean, facts of law. This is just an industrial hearing, not involving attorneys. It's involving a union representative and a frontline manager. 
Yeah, I don't think they're they're arguing for a McNaughton rule. I think what they're arguing is that if the conduct is is bizarre and unusual enough, and the work history is long enough, that uh, one needs to consider what may have been the motivating factor and what mental health and mental status role was played in that investigation. I understand, Your Honor, but I don't I don't believe act just simply acting like a jerk um, uh, renders uh, makes it necessary that an employer sent you for a mental, a comprehensive mental and psychological evaluation. I don't, I don't believe that, that that's necessarily a business necessity. Thank you, Your Honor. My time is thank concluded. You. Okay. Listen, thank you both for the argument. Uh, case 